Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Summer's just around the corner. So give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60. Welcome to another episode of On the Continent, your one-stop shop for everything to do with European football. I'm Dotson Adebayo. I'm Andy Brassel. And I'm Lassie Watson. Today's show is a land of the giants of European football. The mighty Juve, or Juve, shaken, stirred and humiliated by Unai Emery's Villarreal, also in the battle of the somewhat failed legends of European football. Did Ajax fall left hook line and sinker for Benfica's Ropa Dope. And never mind their league success, PSG's ultras have fallen out of love with Messi and Neymar for their Champions League exit. Uh, let's start off with the mighty Juve. Mighty, I say? They were, according to our uh, producer, Charlie, they were mugged by Villarreal. I think that's a, a fair assessment isn't it yeah uh, well they they started the game well um but they were picked off by an Unai Emery team doing exactly what you would expect an Unai Emery team to do and we, we spoke on the ramble earlier this week before the second leg about how it might turn out and we recognized that Juventus were favorites but Emery spoke after the first leg about how the experience of his team had made a massive difference. And I agree with that. I think you look at Real and you think bright, young, plucky in their yellow strip. They're not. They're quite an old side. They do have some very, very good young players led by Jeremy Pino, Samuel Chiquese, who you know they've not been playing all the time for one reason or another, injury and Emery's choices. We'll come to Emery in a bit. But I think the fact that Real, this current set of players have been there, done it and got the t-shirt, made a massive difference, especially as the game went on. Now, Been there and done it and got the t-shirt in the Europa League. Yes, but in European football, because Juventus are now in a cycle of repeated failure in the Champions League. You can't get away from that. You look at the last four exits from the Champions League, all at home against Ajax, against Lyon, against Villarreal and against Porto last season. Now, when Andrea Agnelli is um, looking into the bright future of his Super League, and you know we're, we're not going to just go on about this in, from a schadenfreude perspective, although there needs to be a little bit of that, I think. The fact that a man who thinks that his team are too good for the Champions League. It turns out that they're really not good enough for the Champions League. The, the, the huge irony in, in his avowed stance is the fact that they're not just being knocked out of, of Europe at an earlier stage than that they would want to be. They're being knocked out by teams of a level and teams from leagues, when we go back to France, Portugal and the Netherlands, that, that, that he doesn't think should be rubbing shoulders with his club which is is remarkable really now Lars I, I know that you look at this Juventus <laughs> side and you think that yeah quite and you think that well let's let's be fair we can all say since January 
Dusan Vlaovic mm. has papered over some cracks. But this is a Juventus side which is under construction, right? Yeah, I think there are two separate levels to this story, right? And uh, you've touched upon both of them. First of all, I think they're almost completely separate as well. I, I think it's it's the fun of uh, Andrea Agnelli's Juventus being dumped out again by one of those teams who, who he thinks is beneath them really playing and we can say that because they, they weren't invited to his uh, little sort of uh, how do you say schadenfreude in Norwegian uh, <laughs> schadenfreude <laughs> I, I, I almost said a bad word um, I, I just one of the we wouldn't know, have known one of the teams that uh, the, the, you know the, that Juventus shouldn't have to sully themselves by you know playing against the, you know they shouldn't sully their shirts with the sweat of the great unwashed you know that that the, the Champions League is forcing them to do which is very upsetting for Mr Agnelli so he suggested the Super League thing and it got shot down and for the uh, fourth year running they've been that is objectively funny but having said that. He's getting a lot of stick, Agnelli, but I thought this game was a real vindication for one of his other schemes, which is he suggested we should try to sell subscriptions for only the last 15 minutes of games. And I must say, definitely the last 15 minutes of this game was my favorite part of it. Uh, I, I think that he, I think he might be onto something there. Um, so that's it's based on that NBA thing of like being being able to buy the last five minutes of a game, isn't it? Yeah, it is. But also I mean, the, the, the specific example he gave when he suggested it was, and I quote, if you take golf, if it's interesting at all, it's only the last time. I did get golf there, by the way. If it's interesting at all, it's only the last six holes of the final day. You're not going to watch the whole thing on TV unless you're a hardcore fan. But, but, but it's just really stupid because, it, again, it belays a fundamental misunderstanding of what the game of football is, uh, which is pretty crazy to me. But... Uh, yeah. Well, that's that's before we get into him and Florentino Perez, the ridiculousness of them telling young Hello, people, fellow children, what they like. <laughs> exactly, they are Poochie off The Simpsons, mm-hmm. basically. There's something that they they think is representing the youth, but they have no idea how young people look at or or perceive football, which which is ridiculous. And it's also ridiculous because, as you say, his team were a bit green at the moment. And when we talk about Dotton, about them being mugged by BRAL. The bit where Juventus concede the opener to the Gerard Moreno penalty, they panic. They totally mm. panic. And that affects how the rest of the game folds out. It's funny out. that you say that because um, I'll come to you in just a second, Lars. It's funny that you say it like that because you could argue the first half, they played quite scintillating without the panic. Yeah. What happened? Why Why did they panic at that point? Well, I think the enormity of the occasion is, is, is part of it. And there's stress at the club. And as Lars has said before, quite rightly, when they bought Cristiano Ronaldo to push them over the top in Champions League terms, which obviously didn't work at all, they betrayed the amount of anxiety that they have to go on and win this competition. And funnily enough, Leonardo, who I wouldn't take to quoting that often, the sporting director of Paris Saint-Germain, when they went out to Manchester City and they were totally outclassed in the majority of the second leg of of, of that Paris Saint-Germain, he said, well, there's no point overreacting to this because we've got to a a final and a semi-final of the Champions League in the last two years. And that's about right. You know, you need a bit of circumstance, a bit of luck and all that sort of stuff to push you over the top. That's the most sensible thing that I've ever heard Leonardo say. And obviously it doesn't completely tally with the planning or that thereof. You know, maybe maybe we'll talk about that at the PSG side of it a a bit later. But in, in terms of Juventus, Vlaovic is just their next god that they're going to build around. And you look at, where they were before, where what they did under Conte was such a collective triumph. The opening of the Allegri period in charge is a collective triumph as as, as well. You know, they have a they have a culture, they have a way of doing things, and through that, Allegri gets them to two Champions League finals in in, in three years. But then they decide to build around an individual in Cristiano Ronaldo going back on a promise to build around Dybala. They promised to, we want to make you our Francesco Totti. And now they're going to lose him for nothing this summer. They seem to have fallen out with the idea of that. And now they're just going to build around another single guy in Vlaovic. 
and last, how can they paper over these cracks when the squad is in just such a weird place? I mean, we've talked again about how the Cristiano Ronaldo salary stopped them from rebuilding. But actually, it's, it's not just that, is it? Because when they signed all these players on, on freeze, and Adrian Rabio is, is, is the obvious one of, 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 the, of the current lot, free is always in inverted commas because it's such expensive deals. Aaron Ramsey being another one. They're lumbered with all these albatross contracts yeah. that you can't get rid of. So leaving, having Ronaldo leave has helped, but it hasn't solved everything. Well, no, and I just realized I completely sidetracked myself with the point I was making earlier <laughs> that there are two levels to this. On the first, there is let's all laugh at Andrea Agnelli, and I think we should because I think he, he's earned it. But the second level is where is this team actually now? And as you've said, Andy, that they are in a transitional phase. They have started sort of chugging along and winning games in, in, in Serie A. Mm. But as, you know, Nicky Bandini of this parish has said, they're sometimes borderline unwatchable as, as they're doing it because they're not good yet. And, and and that is the point they are in their development. And so getting done by a well-organized Unai Emery team, that that can happen. Like, that's not actually a scandalous result, I don't think, if we ignore everything else and the fact that it's Juventus. Um, and, and I do think, yeah, there's a cleanup job to be done here. I think... Where, what... <laughs> Like, where should Juventus be? What should we expect from Juventus in in uh, in twenty two twenty twenty three going forward? Like, surely the bar for them is set at at being among the best teams in Europe. You know, they're they're, they're as as much as they've kind of fallen away a bit this season in the league. They they are the wealthiest team in in Italy. Uh, they run by a very wealthy family who can afford to fund them to, to some extent. You know, they should be looking at like Liverpool, Man City, and Bayern. That sort of that sort of realm of teams, yeah. and say this is where we should be. They're really far away from that. And, and I, I definitely think they should start looking at, you know, if you look at these teams that have dominated in, uh, in, in the highest level in European football in modern times, they're very strong collectives. This sort of idea of, of chucking a few stars at it and, and we'll just sort of defend and let the big man do the thing. That isn't really what gets you there anymore. Uh, I know that we've concentrated so far on uh, the mugging from the uh, mugs per point of view. You want to talk about the mugger, not the muggy? Yeah. yeah well, it's a weird way of talking about it. But yeah, damn it, Andy, I was about because, to say that. Uh, well, Jack has sent us a tweet, and we always welcome you your tweets. You early, you won the 50-50. He did. <laughs> <laughs> but we always welcome your tweets at Football Ramble at Dotton Adebayo, at Lars Severston, yeah, Lars, that's how I describe his name, and at Andy Brassel. But uh, Jack's tweet is, is Emery actually one of the best managers in Europe? I don't know if Jack is an Arsenal fan or not. Lars first. I think he is a very good manager at certain things. Uh, and I, I always push back against this idea that this is binary, that managers are either good or bad, or that you can rate them on like a scale from 1 to 20. Like like all people, they're good at certain things and suitable for certain environments and, and less good at other things and less suitable for other environments. And I think there's a very specific thing with Unai Emery which I'd like to bring up, which is the language issue. Because God bless him, his English is better than my Spanish. Let's just get that out there. And he made a really good go at speaking English when he was at our and that is laudable but it's also it can't be denied that he was having issues getting his points across uh, and that, that's something that came out in the aftermath of his firing you know whenever a manager leaves his post you get all these uh, the inside story of where it all went wrong which is where everyone's contacts you know tell people the stories that they couldn't tell before and the subtitle sort of it was the manager's fault well yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but you get interesting details in those pieces and, and one a recurring theme in the sort of uh, post uh, Arsenal coverage of Emery was that he really had issues communicating and getting his points across in meetings and this sort of thing and I think for someone like him, who's a really detailed oriented managers, you know, really long video analysis sessions, very detailed tactical instructions. If you're having issues getting your point across, that is a huge problem. I would have thought if you're having issues getting your point across, uh, bring in an interpreter. You know, th that would be the obvious one. And they often say, don't they, Andy, that football needs no interpretation. It speaks for itself. You can have somebody who can't speak a word of the language, but he gets it. He gets what you want because that's football. I mean, he's someone who prides himself on good communication. So whether he would have allowed himself to do that, I, I think is maybe a, another question. Because he's someone who at PSG and at Arsenal made, made a tremendous effort to communicate and to connect with people. That he lost the nuance is definitely a thing. 
I, I think mm. as well, you talked about the situation. I don't think you have to be so nuanced in your instructions to players of the the sort of age and caliber that they have. Uh, I, I think that there are players who you look at Gerard Moreno, Etienne Capou, Raul Albiol, they're players who get it anyway. I, I, I don't think you need to walk them through everything, which is a definite I, I suspect thing. I think Emery does though. Oh, oh I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure he does at least partially. But I've, I think when you look at what they've done this season, they were receiving criticism at the start of the season and People were talking about him having a, a, a difficult second season there following up the, the, the Europa League win uh, in the Champions League. But I said at the time, the difference was very, very fine in that last season when they lost one competitive game before Christmas, they were drawing a lot of games. Now, they were drawing a lot of games in the first half of this season when, of course, there was a speculation linking in with a move to Newcastle. But they weren't winning as many of those games on the other side because they were lacking all their front players. They had a load of injuries up front. Moreno gets fit. Chiquesa gets fit. Hey, presto, mm -hmm. they're away again. And I think that really makes the difference. And you look at the players they have in the final third of the pitch, they're really, really primed to pick off Juventus once they do get mm -hmm. that little mm -hmm. sniff of, of blood. And, and, you know, you talked about Jack, about the, the, the best managers in Europe. I, I would say Emery's possibly a little bit below that because he's, he's a little bit below elite because he's simply not adventurous enough and he does have mm. a way of doing he's, things. He keeps winning but the then, Europa League. But then, then again, yeah, the Europa League yeah, but you rather, see, rather right. than the Champions League. Whereas I, 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 would, I would say, if we're talking about the best in Europe, Gerard Moreno's up there. Yeah, uh, he's, he's just so skilled not just a great goal scorer but just a great forward thinking interpreter if we're talking about interpreters he is someone who explains everything to his teammates in great clarity with the way he plays and I think it was um, might have been last time I was on this pod actually I was sort of bringing up my sort of affection for Dani Parejo as just being one of those players in, in La Liga who's never really gotten the attention because he's not played for one of the biggest teams. He's having a moment, isn't he? He's just a really good player. Like, mm. and, and, uh, and and there are a few of those. Uh, him and Moreno as well. They're, they're a good team. But I don't think on Unai Emery, like, there's a reason why he's been in, in, in something like eight major European finals already in his career. He is, whatever flaws he has as a coach, he is very good at setting up a team for these sort of one-off knockout games. He gets that right more often than not. And they're not always swashbuckling to watch, but they're a really awkward team to play against in, in these games. And they, they handled this very well. And I know this wasn't a knockout game, but you can take it back to the victory over Atalanta in the group stage in Bergamo, the game they got snowed off initially and then played the next day. Like, again... Atalanta, a much more fun team to watch than Villarreal, you know, really sort of flowing, attacking football. You know, Villarreal just sat back and soaked it up and did ping, them on, ping, ping, counter did them on the, the counter. Yeah. Yeah. That is the <laughs> mugging, isn't and it? And it was just yeah. beautiful. And don't try this at home, folks, but yeah. that is how you mug something. From a tactical point of view, it was just beautifully uh, executed. Even though, like, as a as a neutral, as a paying punter, I'd, I'd probably go see Atalanta before I go see Villarreal. Uh, but in terms of, like, going far in these competitions, the ability to do that certainly is a factor, I think. Guanya la línea a fons central a l'interior de l'àrea gol. Remata amb el cap Jeremy i fa el primer un jugador molt més menut que Sergi Gómez i que Cabrera tot sol, tot sol ha rematat de cap. Jo no ho acabo d'entendre. Of course, there was another <laughs> cracking match. I thought this was a battle of two historically um, legendary clubs, Ajax versus Benfica. It was a hard one to call initially, but then it turned out to be, at the end of the day, it was well, not another mugging. I wouldn't describe it like that, but it did I wasn't that far off, was it? It wasn't far off, but I preferred the doper rope that Ali uh, performed on George Foreman because yeah. you soak up a lot of the opposition. You make them think that they're, they're on the um, ascendancy and then... Uh, when they're almost knackered, you pull out your blow. You know what? I think that Ali Foreman comparison is a really, really good one because I think, like Ali, Benfica set themselves that we're 
going to be under the pump for a, a long part of this. Mm. You know, that they, they readied themselves for punishment. And they kind of had a template for this as well. I think we might have mentioned it before, but if you go back to the start of their European season, of course, because they finished third in the Portuguese Liga, they're going to have to, they're going to finish third in the Portuguese Liga this season. So they're going to have to go through the same thing again when it comes to July, August. Um, if you go to the playoff round and get a very hard fought win, over Ajax's domestic rivals and title rivals. It's still a good title race in the Eredivisie. Um, PSV, they get a very hard-fought win over them in Lisbon. And then they go away to Eindhoven for the return. They get their best defender, Lucas Felicimo, who's since been injured and is out for the season, sent off in the first half. And you think, shit, they've got an issue here. But the collective defensive effort for a team that is built to attack... And a team that through successive coaches has been built to attack since George Jesus first arrived in 2009. For them to find the collective strength to defend like this was really impressive. But they, they had to go through it as well. Because really, you know, Lars was talking about Bial being so, so well set to counterpunch. On paper, Benfica should be like this as well. You look at Darwin Nunez, who can... He's great number nine, mm. can hold the ball up, can run the channels as well. You've got a playmaker in Rafa who's got so much pace, who can get past that last man as well. But those chances don't really come. And I think part of that is because they're so maxed out keeping Ajax out and they do a great collective job. They actually don't have the energy to counterattack for lots of this. Now, Benfica have two real chances in this, which are both set pieces. There's the Vertonghen one where he gets free and should make a better job of it. And there's the one that Darwin actually does score. But I think because they've got that siege template that they've got from their last visit to the Netherlands, when they they, they put one over a, what, especially at the time, it's a very, very good PSV side. Again, very adventurous, very exciting to watch. Um, I've, I think they've got something to to work from, even though they had a different coach then. And this is the talking about Nelson Verissimo, the erstwhile assistant to Jorge Jesus, who's now in charge of Benfica for the rest of the season. It's the ultimate feather in, in his cap because to get them to the, the, the quarterfinals is, is amazing, especially after the season they've had. And especially because Amsterdam, because Benfica won the European Cup there back in the early 60s, it's got such an enormous historical resonance mm -hmm. to them as a city. Like you said, we talk about Benfica and Ajax as two great European names, but Amsterdam is a special place for Benfica. Well, it is now, I suppose, Lars, um, because uh, the uh, Ajax did try their best to undo Benfica initially, but Benfica, you may as well have thought that this was a home match for them. They didn't seem to have any of the, you know, wobbles of a team that is facing the opposition. Interesting that both uh, of the Champions League's last 16 matches that we're talking about were won by the away team. Yeah, it's it's been a blow for all those early hot takes about how there will never be any away goals anymore now that the away goal rules... <laughs> I, I I remember these things. Remember the these were good times, Andy. You know the first game between PSG and Real Madrid, right? Real Madrid set out quite defensively, and we had this whole cadre of weirdos on the internet who was like, "Well, this means with no away goals, no one will attack anymore away from home." It's like, "Well, Mourinho's no. on the way back." No, <laughs> it means that Carlo Ancelotti is not a moron and isn't going to go gung ho away <laughs> when you're playing against Kylian Mbappe. That's what that means. Anyway, yes, away goals still being scored. Uh, I, I didn't. Can be controversial and say I didn't think this was a great game. <laughs> I was kind of looking. I think forward. that's fair to say. I was kind of. Yeah. I was double screening this a long time with the other one, and it was one of those where I kind of wanted this to be fun in the way the first leg was. The first leg was amazing, like in terms of just end-to-end -end chaos. Mm. But this was not great, and but I guess that is credit to Benfica, like the fact that Ajax weren't really able to do their thing. Ajax not at their best here at all, uh, and didn't create that many good chances really, even though they had quite a lot of possession. And I guess that is credit to Benfica, and 
it's just one of those things that I mean it's been it's been a funny old couple of years in the world. A lot of things we didn't think would happen has happened. Certainly one of the things we did not expect a few years ago was that we'd be talking about a, a double pivot of Julian Weigel and Adele Terraps you know, <laughs> shutting out yes. uh, a magnificent Ajax team in the knockout stages of the Champions League. I've, I've, I've looked at Weigel a lot and you, I think it's funny. You look at his career has obviously not turned out quite as he would have hoped or expected when he was linked to Manchester City and Barcelona, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Borussia Dortmund really need that kind of midfielder at the moment. If I was, if I was them, I would try and buy him back. And playing football with Adil Terapt, he's living the best of all lives. Oh yeah, he's having a wonderful time. Come on, I don't, I don't have any doubt about that. But um, just from, I, I guess him like maximizing his potential kind of perspective. I, I don't know, from, from, that, from the Ajax side, it's, it's, it's funny, isn't it? Because we've looked at this team a lot, and especially as they were firing through the group stages, we were all saying, well, is this an even better team than they had in, in, in 2019? And of course, the thing from 2019 and that incredible run in the knockout stages where they get past Real Madrid and Juventus and they nearly get past Spurs... It's they can't get it right at home. Mm. And you look now and they've not won a knockout game in the Champions League at home since 1997. That is shocking. Mm. Actually. It's, sho- it's, it's shocking. I was actually for, not aware of that. It's, Good shocking. it's shocking for a recent semi-finalist. Mm. And it, it, it was funny because I think we looked at it, I looked at it in the group stages and thought, well, actually, maybe because this team's got a bit more experience in it now because, you know, Tadic is still there mm. and Haller's still there and you, ha- you have Daily Blint maybe this is a slightly more mature team and they can handle the occasion because it's really atmospheric in the Johan Cruyff arena. And there was a sense that the young team of 2019 found it a little bit much mm-hmm. and maybe they found a, found a little bit more liberty on the road. But actually, they choked again, mm, like, like Lars was saying. And, you know, I think if you go back to since they, they got to that Champions League semi-final, you know, you look at them getting knocked out of Europe, um, with games in Amsterdam against Getafe and Valencia, n- not absolute top-level elite opposition. And with all due respect to Benfica, you have to say that they fall in that category as well, particularly the way they're playing this season. Yeah, and I think if we are comparing it to that last great Ajax team, I, I, I would stand by the assessment that this is very good and could match them in a lot of ways. But I guess one of the things that's kind of missing is there's no there's no midfield passer in the way Frankie de Jong was. I mean, there's mm. no one who can really move the ball like like he can and, and find space and, and dictate things. Uh, Gravenbach is, is going to be a great midfielder. Don't get me wrong, but he's still quite young and a little bit rough around the edges. You know, Alvarez is a very sort of steadying defensive character there. You know, the, the Gravenbach... Barry Hughes is fine, but, you know, you're not... This could compared to the breakout season, Frankie de Jong is not the same. The Gravenberg thing that you, you were just saying, your description of him is pretty much top scout's description of him at the moment. Ooh. In the, like, we, we, <laughs> know, we know he's available. Yeah. We like him. We're not prepared to bet the farm on it. Yeah. Him. Whereas there was, like, unanimous opinion on Frankie de Jong, wasn't there? Who, funny yeah, enough, yeah. might, be dispens- might be dispensable for Barcelona. Of course, but they're very different stupid. sorts of players. I mean, he's clearly... I mean, I'm not going to go off on a tangent here, but like he's the only reason he's not one of, established as one of the best midfielders in the world right now is it's that John, he's, gone John in, club. he's joined to a, a total <laughs> dumpster fire of a club and just hasn't really found his place there yet. Mm. You know, he's still... He, he, don't worry about him. He's very good. Yeah. Uh, but, but I think with Gravenberg, I, 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 I would quite like to see him go to somewhere like Bayern where he goes into an environment where, you know... They can bet some money on him. They can afford it. Mm. And he has a lot of good role models around him. And they, he doesn't have to perform every single week. Like, there's good players around him who can... You know, that would be good to see. But he's surely he's very talented. So I'm not just saying that. But looking at this team, this is the kind of thing that I felt was lacking a little bit in this game. Because they had a lot of ball. And they created some chances. But someone who can really find the openings in the way that Frankie de Jong can, maybe they didn't quite have. Yeah, although uh, Ben has sent us a tweet asking whether we should be considering the coaching from the IX point of view and ask, has Ten Hag been found out or is this IX side just not good enough to be in this uh, last 16 of the Champions League? I think there's enormous overachievement for them in the group stages and in, in, in 2019. So I think this is not exactly a, a knock on 
on Ten Hag. And yeah, I, I think you could you could argue that you know maybe they tactically fell short a little bit, and um, maybe maybe that's happened before. Um, if, if we go back and we're being extremely harsh, saying that second leg with with with, with Tottenham in 2019, I think you have to realise with Ten Hag, he's he's a very very good coach. They have been through a through a lot off the pitch in the last couple of months. Ajax, of course, um, Mark Overmars, the sporting director, who mm. Ten Hag was very close for, left in disgrace, and the way that the club dealt with that, well, is is questionable. And now, of of course, not, none of all of this pales in comparison to the, the victims of his harassment. It's not the most important thing, but in terms of what it's done for Ajax, it's, it's shaken the foundations of the club a little bit. And Ten Hag needs that support network behind him. When people talk about him as a potential Manchester United coach, I don't think there's the football infrastructure there to really give him the help he needs at the moment. And say if you were talking just off the top of your head, a lot of people think it will be a runoff between, say, Ten Hag and Pochettino. Pochettino has got experience of being the manager you know, the English style mm. manager, which Ten Hag doesn't. So without Manchester United completely reforming the way they do things, Pochettino for me would be the better bet, for example. That's not to say Ten Hag isn't, isn't a really good coach. I think he is a really good coach. And of course, he succeeded in, in, in Germany with, with, with Bayern <coughs> as, as, as well. But, but yeah, he, do, he does need the right partner as a, a sporting director, I think. How much, Lars, does uh, Ten Hag's cachet uh, suffer from a defeat like this? Almost not at all would be, would be my feeling, really. Uh, but I mean, I, I did hear one pundit say like, oh, can United have a manager who's who's just been lost to Benfica? Which is like just intergalactically stupid. It's like... I mean, it, you know, United have been knocked out of the group stage by Benfica when Sir Alex Ferguson was in charge. Yeah, it happens. Uh, and and But also, as much as we're praising Unai Emery for getting these one-off games right, I think it is very harsh to judge someone uh, from this tie against Benfica where they had huge chances in the first leg and should really have been a couple of goals up from the first leg on the balance of play, I thought. My concerns with uh, Ten Hag would be, I think we've seen it a few times, and it's kind of maybe slightly unfair on him, but at Ajax, you're in this sort of incredibly clearly defined system. You know, all, all the kids who come through have been playing, you know, to the general principles, you know, since they were toddlers, basically. I'm exaggerating, but you know what I mean? Uh, they, have a, just. they have a scouting <laughs> they have a scouting system who know exactly which qualities to work from because there is this general idea of how Ajax should play. So the players who come in from outside, you know, they have roughly the qualities that you'll need. So it's all really set up to, 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 to go in the same direction. And if Eric Hague hypothetically goes to Man United, right, he's taking over a team who, let's face it, has not been playing Ajax football since they were 12. You know, mm. these players, it's completely different. You're kind of taking, uh, and we see this with these sort of Ajax coaches when they're sort of taken out of Ajax and released into the wild and have to sort of fend for themselves. It doesn't always go very well because you have to, you don't have that sort of background. And that's something that would... Again, it's harsh on him because he's an incredibly intelligent guy and maybe it'll be fine, but if I was looking to appoint a manager, it's something that would be on my mind at least. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Whoa. 
Welcome to Eureka, the show that gets under the skin of science in a good way. I'm Rick Edwards. And I'm Dr. Michael Brooks. Not the kind of doctor who'd be able to help much if you were having like a heart attack. But if you're wondering about quantum physics or the theory of matter, he's your man. Well, probably. Every week we're asking a new puzzling question from the world of science and discovering the answer with the help of a world-leading expert. Like, will we ever talk to animals? They are definitely talking. You know, that's, again, a word that I would qualify because we usually mean that vocally. But in their own ways, they're talking to us every single day. Are face transplants the future of cosmetic surgery? Given that range of what's considered attractive, there's probably no point wanting to change your face to be more attractive if you follow science. And should we fear an alien invasion? If an imperialistic drive brings uh, other civilizations to us, then obviously it's not good news. But if it's scientific exploration, it may be good news. If you're interested in learning a little bit more about the weird, magnificent world around us, then this is the show for you. Eureka. Subscribe now and find us on Twitter at EurekaPod. New episodes every Wednesday. Eureka is a Stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network. Let's talk about the fallout uh, from not uh, advancing in the Champions League. Messi and Neymar. It's a messy situation. Well, this is, <laughs> this is surprising because, you know, you don't think uh, Messi and Neymar will get the stick from their own fans, but they have been, haven't they? Yeah, and um, from the moment they went out of the Champions League... You knew something was going to happen, but it was on, to on, Real Madrid. Be realistic, yeah. Man. But 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 it you, was one it of was the most the embarrassing things I've seen on TV in a while. You watch Celebrity Love Island, do you? <laughs> I did not. <laughs> uh, and, and anyway, I've, I think that the the thing is because of you, you know you could go out of the Champions League, but it was it was the manner. And, you know, we, we discussed that last week, but from the moment they went out, you, you knew the fans were going to do something. The ultras were going to do something and they made it clear they would. Um, Sunday lunchtime kickoff against Bordeaux. It was my game of the week last week, precisely for this reason, in actual fact. But the amount of personal pushback against Messi and Neymar was perhaps a little in- unprecedented. Um, they were booed before the match. They booed when they were on the ball during the match by their own fans and of course th- this was while they were winning by the way quite comfortably against a Bordeaux side who were utterly rubbish and in genuine danger of relegation but that's that's another story um, I, I guess because Messi arrived to such fanfare um, him, him his entourage and people from back home in Argentina, people he's played with, former teammates at Barcelona. They're all a bit, we had Cesc Fabregas sticking up for him on Twitter, didn't we? Mm. Sort of saying, come on, man, have some respect. But what you've got to understand is it's not just on Neymar and, and Messi. It's not just them being booed for their personal contributions. It's what they represent. Exactly. It's the fact that they represent this star above team culture. And for what it's worth, and and I think the whole, you know, the Ultras put out this incredible statement last week, which questioned the whole culture of the club. It questioned the way that Nasser Al-Khalafi runs it, the president. So he's under pressure as well as Leonardo, the sporting director, who've been expecting to to, to go for for a while. But I, I think, you know, there has to be some personal responsibility for Messi and Neymar as well. I mean, people have a certain view of Neymar, which we're all clear on already. But I think with with Messi, we think of him as, you know, football's Peter Perfect. But he came into the season, as we've said before on numerous occasions, at a massive disadvantage in that he came into a physical league, which he has struggled in so far because it is so physical, Without a preseason, which is not great for any footballer, and particularly not one who's heading into his mid thirties and, and changing leagues. And of course, he 
went home for Christmas when one would argue if he was genuinely conscientious and genuinely fully bought into the PSG project, stay in Paris or at least go somewhere and do a warm weather training camp, get your pre-season in the winter break. You owe it to the club. You're their star player. You signed for a fortune. You're meant to be running things. Put in the bloody effort rather than going back to Argentina. You're sounding like an ultra. Having a party and getting coronavirus. Yeah. Which yeah. which is is what he did. And that would piss me off. And of course the problem is, it comes back to the culture of the club last, because neither Pochettino nor Al Khalifi or Leonardo were in a position to crack the whip and make him do it. It, it because of the culture they've created. So it brings me to mind, I saw some very salient quotes from Nasser Al Khalifi, who said, you know, I'm quoting here, the players will have to be more responsible than before. It must be completely different. They'll have to do more and work harder. They're not there for their own amusements. If they do not agree, the doors are open. Ciao. I do not it's want not star behavior. I do not want star... It really isn't, is it? I do not want star behavior anytime. Uh, you know when he said this? The summer of 2019. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I kind of want to bring this back to... How's it going, mm-hmm. Nasser? Is it, uh, how, do you feel like you've really followed up on these threats? Do, do you feel like you've stamped out star behavior at this football club that you run? Or acti- I feel like you haven't, man. Actively nurtured. <laughs> but then why, Some might say. why aren't the ultras... I know you say that uh, Neymar Messi are representative of this star over club culture. I get that part. But ultimately, booing them doesn't change the issue. It's the culture. It's making the club understand we reject this individual culture. And also, like but, this isn't necessarily on Messi because he didn't make the decision. Well, he did make the decision to come there, but he didn't make the decision to bring him in. Like as much as he's great, he's totally the wrong signing for them from the beginning. Like it doesn't yeah. make any sense. And we've, we've said this pretty consistently on this podcast this year. A front line of him, Neymar, and Mbappe makes no sense. It is like someone going, "Well, you know, I think steak is really nice, and I also like ice cream, and I really like champagne." So you put those three things into a blender, going, and then glug glug glug. Oh, this this oh, this is terrible. How can this happen? <laughs> I've put really good things into a blender. Isn't and, and, that and because PSG? went through this cultural uh, sort of comparison with Real Madrid's Galactico periods where, you know, the stars, the stars, the stars, doesn't matter if they fit in or not. Isn't that it, really? Maybe. I think I think you could make that comparison, certainly to the first Galactico era. Though I would argue that if you look at the players they actually brought in, it wasn't nearly as much of a mismatch as this. Uh, if you compare it, I think that you're being very mean to the Galactico era Real Madrid. And they, uh, of course, those players were the very best. The other thing is, the reason why the Galactico period, the first Galactico period, particularly at Real Madrid, worked at least to a certain extent, it certainly worked in in, in, um, terms of European Cups, is because I remember Emilio Butragueno saying to me, the thing is, what we need is we need this balance. If we have Beckham and Figo and Zidane, we also need... Raul Bravo and like local Mm. guys because they are the ones who get the essence of the club. Now, obviously, what he's leaving out there is basically it's financially expedient. If you're paying someone six million a year, if someone else in the same dressing room will take 150 grand a year, that is great for us. And that is what makes it all financially work. However, there is a germ of truth in that because what PSG have done and part of what's pissed the fans off so much is they have made a conscious effort in the last couple of years to basically move away from the players produced by the club or produced by, you know, one of the most prolific regions in Europe, really, before you even get to Clairefontaine, of Paris and the Ile-de-France region. But actually, they've made a decision in the last couple of years to turn their back on Nkunku to turn their back on Moussa Diaby. You won the 50-50 again, Andy. Players who become... Say. But, but <laughs> the, the, the thing is, it's not just the fact that they have chosen to use those players as collateral rather than use them in the squad. They have basically said to all those generations of future PSG players from Paris, you ain't getting in the team here. And it's really hard to rebuild that trust. How can how can they do that? How can they do that 180? Because if I was a, a, a quality young Parisian player, I would be thinking, why don't I just go somewhere else where I actually play? Yeah, I, I was going to... That's why I was joking when you've gotten in there. I was, I was going to say, 
and I planned to say this coming into the studio today, one of the most humiliating things for PSG this season is the season Christopher Nkunku is having in Germany. Yeah, if yeah, you look at totally. what, what does this PSG team need, you're overburdened with stars, you have a front line doesn't make any sense at all. You need a, a quick and bright uh, forward player who, who can go past people and who also puts a shift in, and who also makes an effort, who can be used in a pressing system. Like, Nkunku is right there, and you had him. But, 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 you, but you were too impatient, and you wouldn't like give him time to develop, and, and, and now here you are. And, and it's just really weird to me, if you own a football club in Paris and you have basically limitless funds, I don't understand how your first priority isn't to try to make sure you have the best academy in the world because you have you know, probably the, one of the most productive regions on the planet in terms of producing football talent. Why isn't this your number one priority? Why isn't making sure the academy is funded, but also, like you say, there's a clear pathway to the first team and you are going to give people... Because you can, because you're so dominant in this league that you can totally have one or two yes. youngsters in every single yes. game and you will still probably win the league, right? There's let, no risk there. Let me throw in this quick tweet from Ron. It only needs a one-word answer or a three-letter answer. Which European club would you guys say is most crippled by internal politics? I still think Barcelona have got an issue. <laughs> there you go. I just been talking about being crippled by internal politics. I know we just spoke about them, but it's hard to get past PSG because it's a club where yeah. the coach can't make the decisions he wants to because of non-footballing factors. Yeah. He can't tell the players to do... I mean, Miguel Delaney of this parish wrote a great sort of post-mortem on PSG, but one of the little nuggets was that a former PSG manager, who Miguel very tactfully allowed to remain anonymous, you know, once presented the players with a very sort of de detailed setup for for how they were going to approach a crunch Champions League match. You know, who's pressing where, who's running where. And the immediate feedback from one of the players was, do we have to run this much? <laughs> it's like, this is the club we're talking about, right? And and you bring in Pochettino. Pochettino's always been a total mismatch for this. Like, it doesn't make any sense. And But again, Pochettino wants, probably, if you, Pochettino probably wants to bench at least one, maybe two of these stars to yeah. get, but he can't. And you can't make the signings because of again they want the stars How his ideal players already left basically <laughs> and just yeah. fundamentally like putting together a front three of Mbappe Neymar and ne Messi you only do that if you fundamentally don't understand football okay give Lodge bad three letters and he takes a whole alphabet including those extra three letters in Norwegian bad <laughs> yeah indeed So, Andy, you're on a roll. You, you gave us a cracking a game of the week last week to keep our eye on. and It, it delivered, uh, to be frank, um, in terms of PSG, at least. What are you going to offer for us this week? There's a big game Sunday night. It's not the game that you think. It's more of, I guess, an amuse-bouche. Half past what? six on Sunday night, Dortmund are, Borussia Dortmund are going to FC Köln which is incredibly atmospheric at the best of times. Um, Köln have really improved this season. They've been great, mostly off the back of um, their, their terrific coach, uh, Stefan Baumgart, and also um, Anthony Modest having this incredible career revival. Now, Dortmund won their game in hand during the week at Mainz. Ugly old win with a bundled-in winner, appropriately, by Axel Witzel near the end. They are only four it points. Counts, you know. Oh, it does. <laughs> and they're only four points behind Bayern all of a sudden. And the way that Dortmund have played over the last month and the way that Bayern have played over the last month, you're like, what? How has this happened? <laughs> and obviously, having shortened the gap, they'll manage to find a way to make it larger this weekend. But just let's let's believe in a title race while we can. Let's see if Dortmund can go there and get a result. And of course... Erling Haaland is back. I, I think people in North London will know what you mean. Was it what? How has this happened on both sides of the North London divide? What are you going to eat with it, though? Something German? Um, yeah, I, I, I think maybe maybe I, I, I fancy. Um, well, it, it is Sunday night. I think some sort of roast with kartoffeln. Not a sauerkraut. Uh, I, I think that could be the way. I, 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 I never say no to a bit of sauerkraut. Well, there you go. Uh, what about you, Lush? Listen, I'm going to be Captain Obvious here. 
It is the El Clasico, as it's called, of course, in this country. Uh, no, it's El Clasico between Real Madrid and Barcelona. And I, th- I think this, even though, of course, Real Madrid are 15 points ahead of the table, Barcelona is not going to catch them. I still think it's kind of an interesting game because I think in the last couple of uh, uh, weeks and months we've seen Barcelona sort of gradually get their groove back a little bit and just kind of look like something approaching a good team again uh, and and I think it's really interesting to see how, how, how Xavi handles this going to Madrid against the Madrid team that's been buoyed by their recent success against you know embarrassing celebrity outfit PSG uh, so, so I think this should be a lot of fun and I think I think there should be goals so I, th- I think it's all you want from a, from a Sunday night El Clasico. And what are you going to eat with it? So, obviously, sort of the answer is like Hassan Tapas, but like specifically the sort of cod, salt cod fritters they do in, in Madrid in, in the bars. You, you have a beer and sort of the cod frittery thing. It's, it's very, very nice. Football Ramble Presents is a Stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.